Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. My name is Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 16, Alessandro Moreschi and the Blessed Knife. In the Aprils of 1902 and 1904, a series of gramophone recordings were made of a male singer in his mid-forties. The man's name was Alessandro Moreschi, and he was one of the very last singers of a tradition that had lived on from generation to generation for at least three and a half centuries before him. It was a tradition that in various times and places had aroused lust, disgust, passion, pride, love, and hatred in equal intensity. The tradition I'm speaking of was called castrato singing, which basically was the production of male sopranos through the strict training and castration of prepubescent boys. The great castrati singers of the past, with stage names like Farinelli and Senesino, were famed as being among the greatest musicians, let alone singers, the world had ever heard. They were the androgynous rock stars of their day, and were perhaps the first musical superstars as we understand the concept in the Western musical tradition. Moreschi, at the tail end of that fading legacy, despite being called the Angel of Rome as a younger singer, was never mistaken for being their equal. Certainly, most people who hear his recordings today like to think that the great castrati of the past would have sounded much more musically convincing. But then again, if we didn't have these recordings, we'd probably assume that Moreschi, the last castrato, would have sounded, well, more compelling and more musical than his recorded voice actually does to many of us as well. Those who defend Moreschi will argue that by the time he recorded, his voice had already passed its prime, and also that many of his awkward affectations were entirely idiomatic in the performance practice of his era. Furthermore, recording into a new and strange machine would certainly have been a physically uncomfortable singing experience, and perhaps emotionally nerve-wracking as well. There was a technique to it, and not everyone caught on straight away. Even today, musicians get nervous and tighten up in front of a microphone and a recording machine, which is something I've mentioned in a previous episode. But putting aside everything these recordings aren't, Moreski's recorded voice continues to express, in my opinion at least, an intense depth, sadness, and mystery. It may not sound anything like the castrati of the past, but it does give us a glimpse of that horrible and beautiful lost world of sound, a world of sound made possible through horrific acts of mutilation on innocent children. Well, on that cheery note, let's listen to the man sing. This is perhaps the most famous recording of the set. It's Moreschi singing the Bach Gounod version of the Latin text Ave Maria.
So that was Alessandro Moreschi singing his heart out for all eternity. When discussing the Moreschi recordings, it's easy to say that such a voice will never be heard again. Indeed, there are many ways in which that statement is true. For a start, that's true about every recorded voice, as every voice is unique. But equally, there are ways in which that statement is exaggerated. Albeit rarely, a few singers have emerged in recent years who have been called natural castrati. For various reasons, their voices never broke in the typical way, and they've been able to establish careers as soprano singers singing in what's called chest voice. That's as opposed to the falsetto, or head voice, of the countertenors in the classical tradition, and the glam rockers of the recent past like Axl Rose and Jesus Christ in superstar mode. However, the unnatural, so to speak, castrati of the past were different from contemporary male sopranos such as Radu Marian in at least two respects. Firstly, the complete castration of prepubescent boys affected the body in particular ways, some of which were advantageous to singing. Due to their testosterone deficiency, castrati often developed a condition where their bone joints wouldn't harden in the usual way. This would result in unusually long limbs, but also an enormous ribcage for trained lungs to grow into. The extended lung capacity of these men was meant to be one of the aspects that made them such special singers, but commentators of the time would sometimes point out the mismatch between the power of their art and their physical awkwardness. As one critic put it, Farinelli drew everybody to the haymarket. What a pipe! What modulation! What ecstasy to the ear! But heavens! What clumsiness! What stupidity! What offense to the eye! Reader, if of the city, thou mayest probably have seen in the fields of Islington or Myland, or if thou art in the environs of St. James, thou must have observed in the park with what ease and agility a cow, heavy with calf, has rose up at the command of the milkwoman's foot. Thus from the mossy bank sprang the divine Farinelli. Beyond their physical characteristics, what really made the Castrati great artists was their rigorous and intense musical training. Once the operation was completed, there was no turning back. If the child didn't make it as a musician, well, they sadly wouldn't have too many other options to participate in society. It was a case of, help me music teachers, you're my only hope. A music history book from 1695 describes the daily routine of a castrati school in Rome. One hour of singing difficult pieces, one hour of trills, another hour for ornamentations, an hour of singing in front of a mirror to be aware of body language and physical appearance, and finally an hour of literary study at least before lunch. After lunch, there were half-hour sessions in music theory and counterpoint writing, followed by an hour of dictation and a final hour of literary study. After that, they had their free time. But in that time, they were expected to master the keyboard and to compose music. Say what you want about it, but it was a thorough musical education, and it created singers like Carlo Bruschi, who is better known by a stage name, Farinelli. At the height of his powers, Broski had a chest voice range of three octaves, and with his enormous lungs he could hold the note for over a minute. Farinelli, in many opinions, was the greatest castrato of them all, but the origins of the Italian tradition stretched back at least 150 years before him. While the historical details remain murky, it's fairly well established that castrati singing emerged within the Roman Catholic Church. Church law dictated that women were not allowed to sing in church or on stage, and slowly but surely, from around 1550 onwards, castrati began to take over the important soprano parts from the weaker countertenor voices that came before them. Why there were castrati in Rome in the first place is again unclear, but castration as a form of subjugation has a long history indeed, and castrated singers have been documented in the Byzantine Empire as far back as 400 AD. 
But the next big step in the history of castrato singing was the development and growth of opera, first in Italy, then across Europe. If you look at the roles for what's considered by many as the first opera, Monteverdi's Orfeo of 1607, you'll see that six out of the eleven main roles were for castrato voice, and an additional castrato was required for the chorus. Works like Orfeo led to the development in the 18th century of a form of opera called opera Syria. By the 18th century, women were playing most of the female roles in many stages across Europe, such as in London, but castrati voices were still required for most of the lead male parts, where their high voices became symbolic of heroic male virtue. Bass and tenor voices tended to only play secondary male roles. Out of the church and on stage for the aristocracies of Europe, Castrati began to literally make fortunes singing in front of fabulously rich and adoring fans. Farinelli established much of his reputation singing on stage in Handel's London. Music historian Charles Burney saw Broski in London and described his singing as such. The first note he sung was taken with such delicacy, spoiled by minute degrees to such an amazing volume, and afterwards diminished in the same manner to a mere point, that it was applauded for full five minutes. After this, he set off with such brilliancy and rapidity of execution that it was difficult for the violins of those days to keep pace with him. In short, he was to all other singers as superior as the famous horse Childers was to all other running horses, but it was not only in speed. He had now every excellence of every great singer united. In his voice, strength, sweetness, and compass. In his style, the tender, the graceful, and the rapid. He possessed such powers as never met before or since in any one human being powers that were irresistible, and which must subdue every hearer, and learned and the ignorant, the friend and the foe. Farinelli was perhaps the most celebrated singer of his time, but there were many other superstar castrati as well, including Senesino, Caffarelli, Valentini, Nicolini, and many, many more. In addition to their artistic powers, the stereotype of a castrato painted a picture of a petulant, demanding, and arrogant artist, and, contrary to current medical opinion, they were seen as men of high sexual appetites. According to opinions at the time, at least, a singer who had had the operation at a later age, say 11 or 12, could develop into an infertile but fully capable sexual adult. Their infertility was perfect for a clandestine affair, and what's more, they were seen as men with heightened sexual stamina and desire as well. Stories and rumors abounded of various castrati's wild sexual affairs with both men and women. And as these stories spread, Castrati became ever more desirable and fetishized objects of sexual fascination. One interesting story that highlights many of the ambiguities in this history is the legendary libertine Casanova's pursuit of a teenage Castrata named Bellino. Casanova became obsessed and even offered a gold coin to see his genitals. Bellino refused, but somewhere in the encounter Casanova discovered that Bellino was wearing a false penis and that he was a she. Historians assume that Bellino was a singer named Teresa Lanti, pretended to be a castrato to be able to sing the music she loved on Italian stages where females were still banned. After the incident, the pair became lovers for a while until they went their separate ways. Lanti put her castrato days behind her and went on to sing on stages in Europe where women were permitted. One actual castrato who fit the stereotype quite well was Luigi Marchesi, who was famed as much for his good looks as he was for his sublime voice. The Italian-English artist Maria Cosway who incidentally was a close friend of Thomas Jefferson's, was rumored in some circles to have abandoned her life and family to follow Marchesi around Europe, at a time when he was said to be adored by ladies wherever he went. For his part, 
Marchesi became famous for being, particularly later in his career, vain to the point that he, quote, refused point-blank to sing at all unless his first entry in the opening scene of the opera were made either on horseback or else on top of a hill. Furthermore, whichever alternative was eventually agreed upon, the cascade of plumes which surmounted his helmet was required to be at least six feet high. Despite these extreme demands, he was never short of work, and as he would take to the stage on horseback, he'd be met by the famous cry from his adoring fans, Long live the knife, the blessed knife. As I was saying, these guys were superstars. But for every one of these very few superstars, there were thousands of castrati who never made the big stage, and thousands more who never made any stage at all. Many castrati, whether famous or not, led very lonely, depressed, and isolated lives. There is absolutely no doubt that the blessed knife caused lifelong suffering for thousands of innocent children and men. So at this point I'll ask the question, where were all these castrated singers coming from? In short, pretty much all of the young boys were castrated and trained in Italy. While castration solely for the purpose of preserving a child's voice was never exactly legal, the church's need for male sopranos and the resulting financial incentives for families meant that many accidents happened. The fact that the tradition began, continued, and ended in the Roman Catholic Church suggests that from the very beginning, moral authorities gave a certain, shall we say, benefit of the doubt to the stories of children who just so happened to have a beautiful voice, and just so happened to have had an accident. As the decades and centuries passed, people stopped asking the question, how did it happen? The same Charles Burney who saw Farinelli sing in London once traveled to Italy to find out where these procedures were taking place. He wrote about it, I inquired throughout Italy at what place boys were chiefly qualified for singing by castration, but could get no certain intelligence. I was told at Milan that it was at Venice, at Venice that it was at Bologna, but at Bologna the fact was denied, and I was referred to Florence, from Florence to Rome, and from Rome I was sent to Naples. It is said that there are shops in Naples with this inscription, here boys are castrated, but I was utterly unable to see or hear of any such shops during my residence in that city. It was a culture of shame and secrecy. That being said, the technical aspects of the procedure are quite well established. Historians write that the operations were conducted with the children sedated either by opium, artery compression, or both. Then, often in a hot bath, the quite simple but life-changing snips would be made, and afterwards their testes would die and wither away. In some cases, the scrotum would be removed completely. The operation was simple enough but it remained extremely dangerous throughout the era. Children could die from either overdose or lack of blood flow to the brain, depending on the method of sedation, and if they survived the procedure itself, they could die from post-operative infections. Well, we roughly know how it happened, but why it happened is another question entirely. How could so many parents choose to mutilate their children so? According to some stories, in certain instances, the child himself would ask for the procedure to happen, it's said that the great singer Caffarelli chose to have the operation, for example, and the fact that he was from a wealthy family seems to support that claim. As for the thousands of boys who are less than willing, nobody can speak for the individuals in question, but what stands out glaringly in the historical record was the financial potential of a gifted castrata. While the chance of becoming a fabulously rich superstar were as rare then as they are now, there were enough opportunities for a comfortable life in a church choir somewhere that parents seemed to have managed to convince themselves that it was the right thing to do. For poor families, it may have felt like their only hope for providing a life for their son and, just maybe, for themselves. 
Some estimates claim that at the height of the tradition, as many as 4,000 young boys were being castrated annually. Unfortunately, the procedure was by no means a guarantee of becoming even a decent singer. Though the voice would never break as such, it would change with the body, and for that reason and many more, many promising young singers were not able to make a career with their voices. Instead of grand and storied careers, they confronted lifetimes of social exclusion, poverty, and rejection. For many good reasons, humanitarian and artistic alike, the tradition began to decline in the second half of the 19th century. Following the unification of Italy in 1861, castration for musical purposes was made officially and unequivocally illegal. And in 1878, Pope Leo VIII banned the hiring of new castrati in the Catholic Church. The then small group of incumbent castrati singers remained in their posts and were allowed to continue singing as they had done all their lives. One of those singers was Alessandro Moreschi, the Angel of Rome, whose voice, for better or worse, still sings to us through the magic of sound recording. So let's end this episode with one more recording of his. It's from the 1904 sessions, and it's Moreschi singing from Terziani's Ostias et Preces. Before I press play, let me say thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>